Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Some are swept to 10 Downing Street by the electorate. Others find themselves there courtesy of their own party. Some have been nodded in by the monarch. But however they get there, prime ministers are, in theory at least, the most powerful people in Britain at that point. But not all of them manage to master the levers of power. And some succeed, others fail, some sometimes spectacularly, sometimes slowly. In the case of Boris Johnson, the 55th Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, the jury is out. But last week, in that spectacular seven-hour testimony to Parliament, his former chief adviser, Dominic Cummings, described Johnson as being unfit to hold office. So on this week's podcast, we're going to take a close look at the role of the Prime Minister. What makes a good one? What makes a bad one? and how they can get stuff done, that old question of government. I've picked a podcast cabinet of all the talents today. IFG Senior Fellow Kath Adden is here. Hi, Kath. Hello, Bronwyn. I'm also delighted to be joined again by Salma Shah, a former special advisor to a number of Conservative cabinet ministers and now a partner at Portland. Hi, Salma. Hello, Bronwyn. Thanks for joining us. And it's great as well to be joined by Sir Anthony Selden, biographer of many prime ministers and author of The Impossible Office, the history of the British Prime Minister. Great to see you again, Anthony. Thank you, Bronman. Well, as I said, let's start with a simple or perhaps incredibly complicated question. What makes a good Prime Minister? The skills required have changed a great deal in the three centuries since Sir Robert Walpole became the first holder of that office. But are there some attributes that are really essential or can different Prime Ministers be successful for completely different reasons? Anthony, perhaps you could start us off. Is there, do you have a checklist that needs ticking off to make a good Prime Minister? An 11-part checklist from them. Top ones are iron will. Second is a clear vision. Thirdly is an ability to communicate to uh, the nation. Fourth is ruthless utterly ruthless to dispense with people close to you. And fifth is the ability to pick the right people inside your cabinet to do the work and inside your staff in number 10 who will do the work for you. So we might come on to some of the other ones, but what you're really saying there is that you need enormous clarity of direction. You have to be able to say why you're prime minister and what you want to do with it. Correct. And those who have been less successful, Bronwyn, of late, including Gordon Brown and David Cameron and Theresa May, didn't have that clarity of direction. Sometimes the clarity is thrust upon you as during the First World War or with Boris Johnson, Brexit and the epidemic. So you either have to come up with that clear vision very clear vision, or have it thrown on your plate by history. But his great historic events make historic prime ministers. We'll also come on to that point. But as you're being exceptionally clear and concise, uh, compared to many people who have just written um, very interesting books, perhaps you could just uh, rattle through the other half dozen for us. So I would uh, list also to have a statesmanlike ability to Uh, move beyond just looking after your own party to a sense of being able to reach out to the whole nation. A profound hard work to have an iron constitution because it is relentless in that job, an ability to manage the media and to manage your cabinet and luck. Okay, that's great. And that gets onto some of the management points about how you just get through um, the job and get it to work for you, which we will definitely come on to. 
Salma, you saw a number of them close up. What do you make of Anthony's checklist? I have to say, I agree with Anthony's checklist, but I would um, sum up all of that together in a single word, which is confidence. And it sounds like a very glib thing to say, but ultimately, when the entire world is offering you their opinion, and that is certainly what happens when you are in government, everybody's got an opinion on everything that you do. Um, you need to have a lot of confidence to ensure that actually when you come to make a decision, it's not something that's going to be shaken very easily. You have so many competing interests. It's the party, you know, as Anthony just pointed out, you know, you've got to think of yourself outside of just a political interest. But nonetheless, you know, the party are the people that have put you there. So you've got to think about them. You've got to think about Whitehall. You have to think about diplomacy. You've got to think about your cabinet. And I don't think any prime minister in history has been able to choose a cabinet that they like entirely. Ultimately, that pressure is bearing down on you as one person. And you need to be able to get up day after day and do that relentless job and have complete confidence and faith in yourself um, to make those decisions. And the hardest part about it, I think, is making sure that it doesn't tip over into arrogance because it completely then um, destroys any credibility that you have if you're seen to be somebody who doesn't take into account advice. So there's this really difficult balance as well that you have to strike. And I, I would also agree with Anthony there that, you know, the people that he pointed out um, as people who didn't do the job you know, in the way that we would describe it as successfully, Gordon Brown, Theresa May, and to a certain extent, David Cameron, what, what they lacked was that central confidence about what they were selling. And if you were going to compare it to sort of Margaret Thatcher or, or Tony Blair, that self-complete and utter self-belief, I think, really uh, transforms premierships. It's a very interesting point you made, because uh, Margaret Thatcher, in a sense, her confidence grew, her confidence about what she was selling, in your words. Anthony, would you say that was right? Yes. Uh, I like uh, what Summer says very much about confidence. If you are as inexperienced as the recent incumbents have been, the last five, including Boris Johnson, have only between them served in three offices of state compared to uh, 23 for the five before them. So a huge collapsing of experience. Then Bronwyn, uh, confidence and competence will grow because they're intertwined. And that uh, gives you then the ability uh, to perform well. And so much of being PM is a confidence trick. And if it collapses, as it did disastrously for Theresa May, after that unforced general election in 2017, then woof, it's all over. Kath, maybe you could, listening to this, maybe you could take us into your, your view of how the, the personality of the Prime Minister really affects things as that person comes into the heart of government, number 10, the Cabinet Office, and how those institutions then react. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting one because, I mean, what we're talking about here is how can you be a completely rounded, successful prime minister? And the reality is that every individual has strengths and weaknesses. And, and you know, it's I'm not sure that you could find one who perhaps masters all of them. I mean, we can probably debate that. But the, the, it goes to have the mastery, that point about competence, it's about the mastery of all of the different levers because the British prime minister has a combination of sort of hard powers, very few really, and a lot of sort of softer levers, informal levers, which because they're all political, 
can be a very strong position for a British prime minister, you know, control of cabinet, they can hire and fire who they want if they've got the confidence and the, you know, the political ascendancy to be able to do so. From number 10, they can, you know, control a lot of what goes on in government, but it's it's a very small organisation. So being able to manage all of that means understanding the variety and massive complexity of levers of you know that that make up modern British government. Similarly, when it comes to managing party, managing parliament, you know, this is all about how to manage all of those different levers. And I think a lot of that does come down to personality as much as sort of skills and experience, because there's a degree of empathy that you need to have to understand what you know the different incentives are of everyone else that you're working with. There's a degree of, of I think, although we've talked about confidence, there's also a degree of self-awareness of where your skills are and where they are not and finding other people who can fill those gaps when you don't have them. So there's a, there's, there's a huge amount that comes down to the sort of the personality, the, the experience they've had previously, but also, like I say, that the degree to which they're self-aware about how much they're living up to that and what they do if they're, if they're not, whether they panic or whether they have the confidence enough to seek out help from others. It's a really interesting point. Salma, you were making the point, um, which really struck me, that uh, the Prime Minister doesn't always uh, get to choose his or her own cabinet. In fact, almost never can have a complete, perfect uh, cabinet, if you like. And, and as people clamour for reshuffles, I think that's something we should remember. Do you think a, a powerful Prime Minister can succeed with a weak cabinet? Uh, yes, I do. Actually, I think it depends what the what the prime minister is after at any particular point. Now, um, if it's about consolidating one's own position, if that's what the goal is, then having a weak cabinet sort of uh, helps that. But it also is dependent on having weak backbenchers uh, if you're going to take that route, because uh, at some point, you know, something something in that dynamic is going to give and shift. So you can't you can't have it both ways. So if you do have a weak cabinet, it's only sustainable for so long because problems start emerging and that backbenchers start having questions about that. So that the dynamic of cabinet is always one that has been interesting uh, insofar as the prime minister's own personal character of how he or she might handle a cabinet is also quite fascinating. I, I do recall in the coalition years and then in the conservative majority David Cameron was always quite fascinating in the way that he dealt with people because he'd always, and certainly you know, in the interactions that I had when I worked for Sajid Javid, he, he had this knack of making you believe that the decision was yours when <laughs> he'd sort of engineered you towards <laughs> it that I always thought was very good. And then if you compare that with a complete 180 with Theresa May, she was very direct about what she wanted you to do. And that is stylistic, but I think you know, the former always works better because it doesn't feel like you're being told off by somebody. And I think we've got to remember that cabinet ministers are people and they have, you know, human reactions in the same way that we all do in any office environment. I just want to pick up on something that Kath said, which I which I find quite amusing, is that you said uh, that, that uh, politicians or prime ministers certainly have to have uh, some self-awareness. I think that politicians, one of their great strengths is that they completely lack in (laughs) self-awareness and the fact that they have to believe in themselves. And I think some kind of suspension, maybe not entirely, I mean, with the practical um, uh, subjects and practical issues, you you do have to be aware of kind of where your skills are or where they aren't. Um, But I think that 
in some instances, good prime ministers do have to suspend a portion of their self-awareness because otherwise, I mean, you'd never get out of bed. I think I'd, I'd always have like, you know, constant duvet yeah. days because I didn't want to just go and face parliament. Getting out of bed is is one of the essential things of, of politics. Well, it worked for Churchill. He stayed in bed and worked for <laughs> Prime Minister there. So, <laughs> but the ability to keep going, the metaphorical getting out of bed. But it's interesting because you're talking about Theresa May, uh, a weak prime minister with, a, at that point, a very strong, a very opinionated, uh, divided cabinet. But we've at the moment got a powerful prime minister with, many would argue, a weak cabinet in some respects. Cathy, I mean, you, you've been part of the team at the IFG writing about this government's uh, struggles to deal with coronavirus. Yeah, I mean... Uh- it's one of these interesting questions, really. There's there's several different facets. So, I mean, we could talk at length about how Johnson works with his cabinet and, and what we think are the sort of strengths and weaknesses there. You know, he does certainly come across as a very centralising prime minister, a prime minister who wants to sort of lead from the front. And certainly in terms of his articulation, you know, on COVID through since he sort of started to take charge of it a bit more, he's he certainly tried to present it as, as something where, you know, he's leading from the front is, is his vision. But what we've seen in the run up to COVID and then throughout COVID are problems, especially around the sort of the body of people closest to the prime minister, number 10 in particular, but also to some extent the cabinet office. And we, we saw a change of cabinet secretary, which in, in a sense is highly unusual when you're going through something so major as a, uh, you know, major pandemic. So there's been a lot of problems of how, Johnson thinks about running the sort of the part of government closest to him, you know, after a few changes at the start and obviously big changes to FCDO, he hasn't made as many machinery of government changes as you see at the start of some premierships, but he has had an awful lot of changeover in and around number 10. And that really speaks to somebody who, this is why I raise that self-awareness point. I agree with you, Selma, but it speaks to somebody who doesn't necessarily know what team they need closest to them that helps make up for the things that they are and aren't good at um, and doesn't really know how to work number 10 well. That's really interesting. We're going to come on to that, that question of how do, you, how do you get it all to work. But Anthony, I wanted to ask you, as we just bring together this section on what makes a good prime minister, um, about the advisors round prime ministers. We've been talking a bit about the need for prime ministers to reach out for advice. And we know indeed about Dominic Cummings and Alistair Campbell and Fiona Hill and, and Nick Timothy and so on. But have prime ministers always had powerful advisors? All the way back to Walpole, there have been many more continuities over the 55 prime ministers than political scientists have led us to believe. They need to have those advisors. Uh, close to them, who compensate for their deficiencies in two key areas, knowledge, uh, and the knowledge of a PM will necessarily be very limited. They might well not know about defence or or foreign or or, or transport or energy. Uh, And secondly, to compensate for the lack of their their skills, including their ability to, to read and compress and digest argument and to understand different uh, people in interest groups and and different elements of cabinet who have important things to say. But I'm going to stop there, Bronwyn, because uh, on the point of self-awareness, having been at dinner as, as the only male on this conversation and been at dinner last night with somebody who was saying that males have no self-awareness, I've at least got the self-awareness to stop. <laughs> we were aware of this point, Anthony. Uh, believe it or not, many of the... Uh... Males uh, we invited on um, are on half-term looking after their kids.
let's move on to the section about what makes a bad prime minister. Is it personal failings? Is it the approach to power? Is it events, external, all a matter of timing, lack of support from the parliamentary party. Kath, do you want to kick us off on this? Yeah, I mean, just going back to what we're saying about what is success for a prime minister, we're talking about what are the features that make up for what we would like to see in a successful prime minister. But you've got to remember, by and large, for a lot of them, it's getting elected in the first place and then staying in the job. And, you know, probably there's this big question about, is it about what they achieve while they're in office? Is it about the policies they pass through? Is it about how they handle the things that hit them along the way, whether it's, you know, a pandemic or for others, it was military action. But for a lot of the time while they're in office, it's just simply staying in the job and staying powerful is the thing that they're thinking about a lot of the time about being successful. And that's one of the reasons why discussions about who are the successful and and who are the less successful prime ministers often gets a bit stumped because you can have some who do terribly in the polls, but actually you look behind the scenes and there was some good policymaking that was going on there, whereas others can stay in the job for a long period of time, but not really get the things done. And not. And even Tony Blair said that he didn't use his first term of office very well. So there's kind of different mix of things when you're talking about what leads to the less successful. And as you said, what mean, what, what we mean by good and bad? I mean, Anthony, is a bad prime minister the same thing as a failed prime minister? Not necessarily. I think Kath puts her finger on it. You need to be in power for a long time and less than half of the 55 were there for more than five years. And without being there for a whole period in government, you are not going to make the changes because it takes a long time to bring in change as a prime minister. So uh, that knocks out 30 of the 55 from being significant figures. The one exception is the one figure who a lot of the pitch-rolling had been done for before, which was Gray between 1830 and 34, who had the 1832 Reform Act and the abolition of slavery in 1833. But long, long you need to be in there in power. There are many failures as, as prime ministers. Sometimes they have been because they have not had the skills to deal with the job, but more often uh, the events have simply been overwhelming uh, for them. You can be a, a, a poorly equipped prime minister, Theresa May, who's also been a bad prime minister because they haven't done their core job, Theresa May, or you can have really quite considerable uh, skills as Jim Callaghan had, but the circumstances of uh, a deteriorating economic and international position with the IMF crisis and uh, the, the majority that, that was lost almost on his first day in power in the spring of 1976, uh, they mean that however talented you are, you're simply not going to succeed. All right, so let's bring in uh, Gordon Brown at this point, because someone who um, is probably one of the most poignant things I've seen in politics. Somebody, you know, a fiercely bright person, wanted the job forever, struggled deeply with it when he got the job. And then when the financial crisis came, actually had his finest hour and uh, was able to coordinate international action and all kinds of things, which he's not always given credit. How does that fit into the picture? Absolutely. Uh, And taking the point about self-knowledge, he didn't have self-knowledge. He constantly was asking his aides very close to, you know, why do people so misunderstand me? He couldn't see himself as a bully. 
the luck point there, Bronwyn, had he taken over, as maybe he should have done in 1997. Uh, he had much more energy then and a much clearer idea than tipping up Cass Point than, than Blair did about, about, about what to do with power. By the time he did take over in 2007, uh, the cupboard was empty and he was therefore rescued, uh, your point uh, there, by the financial crisis that played into his strengths. But he was also darn lucky to have uh, people around him, like Shruti Vadira, uh, like Tom Fletcher, his foreign affairs private secretary, like Gus O'Donnell, like Jeremy Hayward, who were the people who steered him. And like Ed Balls, because Gordon Brown, for all we say about him, wasn't that good an economist. And he certainly wasn't that good an international finance economist. He needed uh, that uh, really great team, including John Cunliffe at the Treasury, to steer and guide him. Really important point. And going back to the point about advisors, and they, they're often forgotten in the, in the history pages. Um, I'm sure not in your book, Anthony. Salma, what do you make of the Dominic Cummings fusillade last week? Is Boris Johnson as bad a prime minister as his former chief advisor says? I think what's interesting about it is that what seems to be Dominic Cummings's criticism of him is that Boris Johnson doesn't think like Dominic Cummings. I think it's fair to say that Cummings is a unique talent, uh, not just in terms of campaigning, but he does think in a very unique way. And he has a personality that means that he is more willing to uh, push through the Whitehall system, which we know can sometimes be like treacle, especially if you're a political advisor, as I as I was. The problem is that once you get into that advisor uh, capacity, that role, you have to ensure that there is a difference between the way that uh, the, you have to ensure that the distinction between yourself and your principal remains clear. And I think the problem for Dominic Cummings was always that when he came into number 10, actually, he wasn't an apparatchik that owed his uh, political life to the prime minister. In some respects, when he came in, you know, before Brexit had been delivered, um, it was the other way around. And Boris Johnson actually needed him more. So he had a, a bigger political brand. He was his own man. And that doesn't work. Um because even if you are supplanting a gap that a prime minister has, you cannot be visible. And you really, you shouldn't be written up in the history pages, however important and however crucial your role is, you are still supposed to be um, the, the junior partner. I mean, even if partner's the right term, I don't think it is. You're just, you're just there to serve the, the political principle. There was a very good line by Gavin Barwell when he was speaking to us about his time as chief of staff to Theresa May. And he said the important word there is staff, not chief, um, that he always had to remember that he was staffing the prime minister. And that was the most important part of his function. But well, it makes great theatre. I'm thinking of not just of Shakespeare, but yes, minister, the, the old trope of the servant cleverer than the master. It really doesn't make for very good government, you're saying. But that's but, that, but hasn't that always been the case? I mean, you know, we can, we can go back through you know any sort of political system. We can go back through monarchic political systems, and there are always people that are making the sort of front guy look good. And you know, really, if we go back to the point of if, if confidence makes a good prime minister, then part of that is performance. So you can be absolutely brilliant at policy, and you can be great at sort of working the Whitehall machine. But if you can't perform, and if you can't sell really there's no purpose to you as prime minister so everybody really is there to help you 
perform. On your shoulders rests the confidence of a nation. So if you are selling a policy, the public has to believe that A, you're across your detail and what you're delivering is going to be transformative or it's going to solve a problem. So your job is really salesperson. Actually, it's quite interesting that behind the scenes, I've always felt that there's a slight sneeriness towards the sort of communication side of of the political job because you know it's it's not this sort of fundamental um deep insight into policy or understanding uh, of what's going on you know as Anthony quite rightly points out you know international financial markets which are incredible skill sets but they are not the most relevant when you are thinking about the great um, offices of state, particularly that of prime minister. It's been described um, in the future of capitalism by Sir Paul Collier as uh, communicator in chief. That's the job. Um, and I think people who underestimate the value of the communications in, in the prime minister's role sort of misunderstand. I mean, it's just my opinion, but what the job actually is. Let's use that as a pivot to move forward to our third section, which we've been toying with all the way through this, and that's how to get stuff done when you are prime minister. Obviously, Dominic Cummings, um, we have his, his account of um, how stuff is not getting done. He tore into the failures of Boris Johnson's government as he sees them, accusing the prime minister of not just behaving like a, a shopping trolley in his uh, lack of direction. <laughs> Probably the most memorable image of it all, but refusing to consult his cabinet, dismissing advice, being obsessed with the media and so on. Um, Behind that, you know, is a question about how any prime minister can get stuff done. So, Anthony, I wonder if you could pick this up for us. Is what Cummings is describing a Boris Johnson problem or is it a problem with the very nature of being prime minister? Well, advisors, even Dominic Cummings, and I agree totally with Selma and Kath about how uniquely talented he was, that they don't know much history unfitness for office has never, Bronwyn, been a requirement for, for the office. Indeed, some of the best prime ministers have been incredibly unfit. Far more so. I mean, I mean, Walpole was, the question about Boris Johnson was, was he unfit enough? <laughs> um, I mean, Walpole was enormously unfit. Palmerston was a, a, a total disgrace. Disraeli, <laughs> Lloyd George, Churchill, as uh, uh, cited, uh, named, called out earlier, uh, by uh, Kath and by Salma. Uh, uh, Wilson was uh, in many ways uh, unfit morally and by the end uh, medically unfit uh, for office. So I don't think that that, that matters, uh, frankly. I think it's just mis- needs to read a bit more history. I think this is a moment where we can be reconsidering not just the premiership uh, on the 300th anniversary, but uh, the office itself and make it more efficient and more effective because, you know, surely in any other office where uh, the last 75 years have seen every single incumbent scuttled out of office, you must have to say, is there something wrong about the office uh, which is making it hard for the incumbents to succeed? And every single PM since 1945, starting with Churchill in that post-Second World War relationship, has been scuttled out of office even Harold Wilson in 1976, often cited as the exception. So I think uh, that the deep thought led not least by Institute for Government needs to take place in making the office more manageable. And I like 
uh, the Paul Collier reference, the, the prime minister is the national storyteller, and yet they get sucked into trivia. I mean, they allow themselves to get sucked into trivia. They need to, to be more capacious thinkers, thinking broader into the future and broader uh, across the world and broader intellectually. And frankly, just a, at a higher level uh, than often uh, they have uh, chosen to operate. That's fascinating. And I'm sure the Prime Minister would have loved not to get sucked into the trivia about his wallpaper, but, but has not been able to. And I'm sure we can suggest to Dominic Cummings that he reads more history and less of physics of systems, make ourselves very popular. But what is it? Your book is called The Impossible Office. What is it that you think would... Uh, question mark. Uh, but the, uh, uh, what, what is it that you think would make this office more doable? it is possible uh, to do it. The PM, let's remember, has advantages uh, in Britain that any other prime minister in a a democratic comparable system does not have, including Australia uh, and New Zealand, Canada, uh, France. Patrick Weller, the Australian political scientist, makes this point very clearly. Uh, No written constitution, first past post electoral system, a unitary rather than a federal country and an elected monarch. Uh, sorry, a non-elected um, uh, monarch, uh, head of government. I do think they need to have their office more streamlined so that they can concentrate on that bigger picture. Uh, I think they need to come out of the foreign policy. Peel in 1841 gave up the, the chancellorship, gave up the treasury. The PM is still first lord of the treasury, but acts as if they're about 14th lord of the treasury. Uh, they need to be at the heart of economic policy Many foreign policy decisions have come because they've come into that field. They really don't understand foreign policy enough. Hence, we've had Suez and more recently uh, Iraq and, uh, uh, and Libya in 2011. So I think a rebalancing, a reconsideration of the PM and bringing in smarter. I agree with Kath, if that's what she was saying, that you don't actually need to have a bigger number 10. It just needs to be smarter, slicker, far more representative of the nation uh, as it is in all the diversities and also fuller of people who uh, second guess the PM and challenge rather than uh, yes men and yes women. I think that we are, we do have essentially a presidential system in all but name. And, you know, if anything, the, the last sort of, I think, 10 years has probably shown us is that cabinet government has diminished and that is as a consequence of the fact that, you know, in, in various different guises, number 10 has been all powerful. And because they can make the decisions about your fate, your political fate, actually, there's a lot of deference towards the centre. But uh, as Anthony rightly points out, without any of the actual levers. And I think if we are going to reimagine the prime minister's role, we have to acknowledge, in a sense, we do need to, because actually the pressure is all on the prime minister, because, you know, out there in, in the world, most people couldn't tell you who is in cabinet. They could probably point out the, the home secretary and the chancellor. But beyond that, it's a bit of a mystery. And if we are going to sort of um, replicate where the blame sort of ends up with the prime minister, then we probably do need to beef up what the prime minister is able to do. Now, there's obviously a lot of a lot of downside to that. I mean, we all like the idea of cabinet collective responsibility. We like the idea that things are delegated and shared. But the reality is the system doesn't really work like that anymore. Um, so we might need to bite the bullet. And even though we don't want to frame it in this way, make the role a touch more presidential. But on the other hand, what Anthony's talking about is actually pairing away some of the powers or the, the, the areas in which the Prime Minister speaks, for example, for foreign policy, which they all love doing. Uh, yeah, I just, don't, I just don't think you can. 
you know, theoretically, that would be a great thing to do. But if they're going to be the representative and they're the one sort of manning the shop window, I don't think you can sort of push that onto anybody else. I mean, and also, would you really allow, if you're prime minister and you're thinking about political consolidation, do you want to create a sort of a big international rival in your foreign secretary? I think that's a very, very good point. Cass, can I ask you one thing? Um, Dominic Cummings said the system, undefined, was responsible for giving the electorate a choice of Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. Is the system, in some sense, that produces prime ministers to blame? I don't think you can say it's to blame. I mean, it, you know, it's a democratic system. I thought that was quite um, telling of Dominic Cummings, because obviously a lot of people would think that that his role has been quite important in propelling uh, certainly Boris Johnson to the fore, but also some of the critiques he was making about the nature of Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn and, and whether these were efficient technocratic people, again, is, is something that people would associate with, with Dominic Cummings. I mean, if you're talking about what Salma's just said, um, you know, could we move to a more presidential system? Well, no, not under our, our current approach, because the idea of democratic representatives in Parliament from then the executive is drawn. I mean, if you start to move to a more presidential system, one person simply cannot take on that amount. So either they have to, you know, if they're not going to delegate to their cabinet ministers because they're rivals in the same party, then they're going to delegate to some other capo or lieutenant or, or whatever. And that means unelected people. And so hence you see powerful advisors. Um, you've had Kevin Collins uh, resign, brought in to sort of spearhead um, education re- reforms in the, in the aftermath of the pandemic. So you're going to see more and more use of those kinds of things. And that does mean sort of undermining the, the central role that, that Parliament plays in its, its intertwining with the executive so I'm not sure that you, you can change it to produce a different kind of prime minister. I'm also not entirely sure that we have fully moved away from cabinet government. I just think at the moment, cabinet is very much in abeyance, but a loss of power for Johnson or a reshuffle gone wrong or a you know few policies gone wrong. And suddenly you can have a very different power balance between a prime minister and their cabinet. And we certainly saw that with Theresa May. So it, it's still there. They're just, they're, they're in abeyance. They're in hiding. Anthony, do you think there are enough checks on the power of the prime minister? Yes, no. There need to be more moral and ethical checks on their behaviour. But the prime minister's greatest checks are their own inability to do the job, to learn about the job, Uh, We talked earlier about uh, self-awareness. Ministers in general, as we know, Institute of Government's done a lot of work here. Prime ministers in particular come into the office knowing too little about what the job is, too little about the history of the office, too little about how to exercise power. Nobody who understood government would have swept away so easily and and callously key figures. It was like Stalin getting rid of uh, his his generals uh, in the 1930s before the Second World War. PMs generally come in ignorant of the office, unwilling to trust civil servants and those who know and understand how the system works. So I think the biggest uh, checks on their operational performance and the fact that they've all been scuttled out of office with, I think, only two landmark prime ministers since 1945 is because of their unwillingness to learn uh, how to do it, a certain humility and a complete 
often lack of clarity about what they've come to the office for. The skills, as implied in everything we said, that get you into number 10 are very different from the skills that you need once you're in number 10 to make a success of the job. And I think having their mind ditzily focused on, on 101 things as at the moment prevents them having that strategic clear picture and I think the pandemic was a very clear example I was chairing Peter Frankopan um, a, a, a month before the pandemic started at a historical talk in number 10 and he said at the end of the talk but the biggest uh, threat far more significant to this country uh, than China is a pandemic and there was a kind of silence there was a moment uh, and then people dispersed uh, but it's not just pandemics it, it, it's thinking yeah. about the implication of ai and a, a, a yeah. job. No, and, 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 and all, all, all kinds of things but you mentioned the the lack of if you like training and experience and knowledge of the job selma do you think uh, there should be training for being a prime minister Yes, and the usual training is is um, opposition. Uh, granted that that doesn't really give you the sort of feel of what happens when you go into number 10. Um, but I think we've had a, a particular period where that normal uh, course of training uh, hasn't really existed. And I think it sort of exacerbated some of the issues that we've all discussed today about, about what happens. I think there are too many variables. And that's also a strength of our system, but this constant sort of jeopardy that we live in. And as, as Kath rightly pointed out, yes, you know, cabinet government's in, in, in abeyance, but anything could change that. And I think we do live in this very uncertain uh, structure. And why we're so dependent on a prime minister being strong and having a majority and being confident. So, you know, ultimately, prime ministers because they are who they are, because they're elected, because they have led their parties to national victories, to some extent, they ha- they have a right to determine how they want to, to do things and what style they're going to use. I think if you were going to train a prime minister, it would be really interesting to see what we would all come up with as a list that are absolute definites that they must know, because I imagine they'd be very, very different, even, even in this uh, in this group, about what we think... Uh, is an absolute necessity. So I think there there is that sort of element again that it, it's so variable um, as to what we all think is important. Salma, I'll have to send you my becoming a prime minister paper for um, guide for future prime ministers and we can see what you think <laughs> is missing from it. Well, I'd love to read it. <laughs> Let me ask you all finally then a question of whether you think the prime minister ought to be paid more. Amazing how often it comes up that such and such a job is more than the prime minister Get Salma, let me start with you. Or less, you might say less. <laughs> no, I don't think the Prime Minister should be paid more and I don't think MPs and people in public life should be paid more because I think that is the exchange that you make for going into public life and doing public duty. Where I think that we should be more generous to the Prime Minister and um, senior ministers is that uh, we should allow them some aspects of a lifestyle that one would expect of someone in that role. So, for example, I would have no issue if the state provided the prime minister with a housekeeper or help or, or something along those lines. And I think um, it's a bit much to sort of, you know, ask the prime minister to sort of pay for his own breakfast and things like that in number 10 when you're kind of forced to live above the shop. So I don't think it's a salary question, but I do think um, we can afford to be a little bit more generous with what we afford the prime minister as a, as a lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I um, I think it's for me, though, it's not just about those issues about the I would call it lifestyle or just simply managing to do the job. Obviously, I don't think they need more and better wallpaper, but 
yes, of course, um, things that help them be efficient in doing what is, you know, often a 24 hour job. I would say where they need more money is actually in staffing for number tenants or a better conception about what this does. I don't think, um, you know, uh, a better equipped number 10, a more stable number 10, I think would be better for government and therefore better for the nation. Um, there, it's not about how it helps an individual prime minister. It's about how we resource government. Anthony? There's no evidence that paying uh, prime ministers, uh, as they have in the last um, 100 plus years, has resulted in a better quality. And therefore, I'm <laughs> going to decide from with my two colleagues, Salma and Cass. We could even say pay them less. Um, that is an option, but not generally where that debate goes. Well, fascinating. Thanks very much. With that, sadly, we're going to have to wrap up this edition of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Kath Haddon, Salma Shah and Anthony Selden. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel. We've got one coming up on how to hold a successful COVID inquiry, one exploring what levelling up really means. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Do leave us a review as long as you don't say that we're unfit to record podcasts. And remember to check out all our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. We've responded to Dominic Cummings' critique and set out our 10-point plan on how to reform government. Let us know what you think. Add some points of your own. And let us know if you've got any questions about the Office of Prime Minister. We're here to answer them. Boris Johnson is welcome to get in touch too. He once said he wanted to be World King when he was young. It's just possible that being Prime Minister is a whole lot harder. Have a good weekend. Have a good weekend.